Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. In the middle of chapter 38, page 521. In this chapter, the Alter Rebbe is grappling with or dealing with a very, seems to be a, a paradox. On one hand, he had just finished explaining in the last few chapters that the action is what matters most. There's a whole purpose of creation. The whole novelty of creation is that God created a material world, which is the antithesis of godliness, and that a Yid, a Jew, comes into this world and transforms the darkness into light, transforms the material into something divine, into something godly, takes something material and transforms it into something godly. And that's only through the action, the deed. That's why the whole emphasis in Judaism is uh, the action, the deed, the act, which is the lowest part within the person. And as expressed in Jewish law, if a person does the mitzvah, but he has no intent, but he does the deed, you have the mitzvah. But if you have all the intent in the world, but you don't do the deed, you have nothing. So clearly, in Judaism, it's the action that matters most, because that's the whole purpose. The whole purpose is, that's why even, even, even things like uh, meditating, uh, praying, which is a more of a spiritual activity, the law states that you have to verbalize your prayer. If you don't move your lips, and you just sit and think and meditate, you have not prayed, you have not fulfilled the mitzvah. So you must engage in the physical and the material. But how do we reconcile that with the whole emphasis of Hasidism, the whole emphasis is on refinement, on the person becoming more spiritual, being a more spiritual person, a more refined person. If all that matters is the action, then why, why the emphasis on spirituality? As the Torah itself says, that if you pray or if you do a mitzvah without intent, it's like a body without a soul. It's like soulless. It's like a corpse. It's lifeless. It's missing a soul. So the Torah itself says that the, it's, it's an essential part of the mitzvah. It's not enough just to do the mitzvah. An essential part of the mitzvah is to have, to do the mitzvah, to do it with soul. Why is that so essential? If the action is what matters most, and when you do the action, you have the mitzvah, you have the connection, so what, what, why is the intent so, so essential? If in your mind you're egotistical and you're arrogant, Hashem says, I despise arrogance. I can't bear to be in the same room, in the same four cubits with an arrogant person. So your thought, your individual thought, your personal subjective state of being changes everything. It's so dynamic, makes such a difference. One thought, one split second is one thought of idolatry and you turn your whole life around. You completely disconnected yourself from, from God. A moment of arrogance, a sense of arrogance or inflated, inflated sense of self, ego, exaggerated ego, and suddenly you're completely disconnected from God. Arrogance is the equivalent of idolatry. 
as we learned earlier. So you see that the personal and the subjective does make all the difference in the world. It makes a difference if a person is refined, if a person is spiritual, if a person is egotistical, or the person is less egotistical. So the Alter Rebbe explains that, of course, there's a huge difference between the body and the soul. Just like there's a difference between the body and the soul. Both are created by God. God creates the body and He creates the soul. But you can't compare something material, like a body, which is a corpse without the soul, versus the soul, which is energy, which is spiritual. And the less material something is, the more spiritual it is, the less rigid it is, the less egotistical something is, the less rigid it is, the more spiritual it is, the more expansive it is, the more, a reflect, the more it becomes a reflection of the infinite. So, it's not, God didn't only want us to do the mitzvah. God also created the personal, the subjective, the soul. God also wants us to reflect, to reflect godliness, to be like a light, a light, a ray of the sun that points to the sun. And the less egotistical a person is, the more spiritual a person is, the more a reflection you are. Something that's materialistic is very rigid. It exists, but that's about it. It can stand still for thousands of years. It doesn't move, it doesn't budge. Then you have the next level, something that grows. So you see some sign of life, but still it stands in one place, but it grows. When you have a higher form of life, there's more flexibility. The animal roams. That's the nature of an animal. A living being has to roam, needs its space. It can't sit still. As a matter of fact, that's torture for an animal. It's very enlightened zoos. They, they, they make sure the animal has enough space to roam. Otherwise, if you, if you coop the animal in a... The, the animal grows like a tree and it's cooped. It's extremely painful. Yeah, it's unnatural for the animal. A higher form of life needs more flexibility. Then you have, of course, the human life, which has imagination. Your mind has to roam and you're curious. A person needs information. A person needs curiosity. He's constantly learning and, and, and uh, observing his environment. And so the, the higher form of life, the more spiritual you are, the less egotistical you are, the less rigid you are, the more flexible you are. And the more of a, of a reflection you are to something, to something greater than yourself. And that's the sign of spirituality. The less rigid a person is, the less egotistical, the more spiritual, the more flexible, the more you are a reflection. So the more spiritual a person becomes, the more you reflect godliness. We're not talking about just becoming a spiritual person. We're talking about doing the mitzvah with intent. Doing the mitzvah with a sense of spirituality. Doing the mitzvah with kavana. If a person is just spiritual, sits and meditates all day, but doesn't do any mitzvah, that has zero value. That means absolutely nothing. Spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip. It has nothing to do with the divine, nothing to do with godliness. On the contrary, it could be the greatest obstacle to God. But when a person does a mitzvah, 
but does the mitzvah with intent. And you pour your whole heart and soul into the mitzvah. And your mind is focused on the mitzvah. You're aware of the mitzvah. And your heart is on fire because of the mitzvah. And you desire to do the mitzvah. And you take pleasure in doing the mitzvah. And your whole being, you're doing the mitzvah with every fiber of your being, every bone in your body. The more spiritual you become, the more sensitive you become. The more feeling, the more aware. Then you become a reflection of godliness. And the more expansive you are, the more you reflect godliness, the more you bring godliness into, into the world. So by doing the mitzvah with intent, you become a reflector for godliness. You bring godliness into this world. Versus a person who just does the mitzvah coldly and mechanically. He just does the deed. Yes, the deed is done, but there's no heart. There's no mind. There's no soul. There's no depth. There's no sensitivity. There's no spirituality. Then it's very limited. The amount of godliness that you bring into this world is very limited. There's no light. There's no heat. There's no light. There's no reflection of godliness. There's no reflection of something infinite. All you see is a rigid a deed, an action. The deed is done, yes. But God also wanted us to, He wanted that godliness should be illuminated, that we should reflect godliness. And the only way to reflect godliness is the less egotistical you are. The less rigid you are and the less egotistical you are, the more spiritual you are. The more aware, the more sensitive, the deeper you are. The more you reflect godliness into this world. And that's why for a Jew it's not enough just to do the good deed. But a Jew has to constantly strive to grow. You have to go deeper and higher and wider. You have to constantly be growing and pushing and expanding higher, deeper in all directions. Everything you do has to be with a deeper enthusiasm, with a, with a higher understanding, with a much more expansive, uh, more breadth. And, and you have to grow in your knowledge and in your awareness and in your spirituality and your sensitivity in every area. You have to fully develop and constantly grow. And that's what Hashem wants of us. Hashem doesn't want the Jew to stagnate and just do the mitzvah and physically. Physically do the mitzvah. But do it cold-bloodedly and mechanically. Hashem wants us to take the mitzvah personally. He wants us to be engaged by the mitzvah. We should be fully engaged. We should be moved by the mitzvah. We should be inspired by the mitzvah. It should expand us. It should inspire us. It should challenge us. We're constantly growing deeper and broader and higher. Because only then do we become a reflection. A person who's spiritual, who's egoless, it's not about you. You become a reflection. But when you're doing the mitzvah, you become a reflection of the divine. So you're reflecting God, the, 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 the essence of God, you're reflecting it in the most infinite way, in a more expansive way. So you're drawing down more of Godliness. And that's the analogy that the Talmud gives, that if you do a mitzvah without intent, it's like doing, it's like a body without a soul. You have the body. Nothing is missing. Every limb is there, but it's dead. Lifeless, soulless. It's a corpse. Versus when the soul comes in contact with the body, the body comes alive. It's spiritual. There's life. There's energy. There's a reflection of, of something spiritual. So that's an essential, essential ingredient. Hashem wants, wants us also to be personally engaged. Our subjective state of mind is critical. Our personal growth our subjective 
being, our minds, our hearts, not per se, but as part of the mitzvah, as part of doing the mitzvah, but doing it with our mind and with our heart, appreciating the mitzvah, being more sensitive to the mitzvah, being more inspired by the mitzvah. So this is the, this is the paradox of Judaism. On one hand, it's the action that matters most, as reflected in Jewish law. If you have the two options, intent without deed, or deed without intent, which one do you have the mitzvah? The deed without intent. Intent without deed, you have zero, you have nothing. Deed without intent, you have everything, you have the mitzvah. So obviously, what's most important is the deed. But nevertheless, Hashem also wanted us to do the mitzvah. To do the mitzvah with intent. That was also Hashem's desire. To do the mitzvah properly. To do the mitzvah with the totality of our being. To do it 100%. Not to do the mitzvah half-heartedly. But to do the mitzvah with everything that we have. So that the mitzvah should reflect godliness. It should be an illuminated mitzvah. It should be a mitzvah that you can sense godliness. You can sense the divine. You can sense holiness. So yes, when you do the mitzvah, you've drawn down holiness into this world. Every time you do a mitzvah, you've done something holy. It's a fact. You've created facts on the ground. You can't, you can't deny it. You're on the train. You're there. You've done the mitzvah. You've drawn down holiness into this world. Versus if you sit and meditate and you don't do the mitzvah, you have zero holiness. Zero. If you do the mitzvah, you've drawn down the essence of God into this world. You have holiness. If you put on the tefillin, the tefillin becomes holy. That leather hide will never be the same. Now it's a holy parchment. It's been transformed forever. But it's not enough. Hashem wants us to sense that holiness. He wants the mitzvah to be illuminated. He wants us, he wants us to become a reflection of the divine a reflection of godliness, an embodiment of godliness. We should become godly people. Not only we should do the mitzvah, but we should become godly people. Our mind should be filled with godliness. Our heart should be filled with godliness. Our desire, our pleasure, our soul. Our soul should be a reflection of godliness. We should be sensitive to godliness. We should be aware of godliness. We should feel godliness. We should experience godliness. We should take pleasure in godliness. We should desire it. We should be inspired by it. We should be moved by it. We should become a reflection of God. Because yes, the whole purpose of creation is God desired. He wanted to, we should build for him a dwelling place in this world. He wanted to feel at home in this world. But how much at home would you feel if your home was dark? Let's say you're at home. But it's dark, it's cold, there's no light, there's no heat. That's not exactly an ideal home. Yes, you're home. You're not, a, you're not a, on the outside, you're home. But that's not... You want the lights on, you want it to be brilliant, illuminated, warm, comfortable. God also wanted, not only that we should make a dwelling place for Him in this world, but this world could be a very dark place. There's very little light. There's very little godliness, very little sensitivity, very little genuineness. 
So yes, you've done the mitzvah. When you do the mitzvah, you've done something genuine, authentic. It doesn't get more genuine, it doesn't get more authentic. You've done something divine. The facts speak for itself. It doesn't matter your personal, subjective um, state of mind. You've done the mitzvah. The deed is done. God is here. Okay, he's here. You created a home for him. But it's pitch black. It's dark. It's uncomfortable. It's not what God wants. Would you invite the king to your house and shut the lights? That's not, that's not exactly, it's not very welcoming. It's not very affectionate. It's not, not, not so nice. It's not what Hashem wanted. Yes, okay, thank you. You invited me to your home and I'm here. But, that's, but you can't see. You don't even notice. You don't even sense that the king is here. Is there a greater insult? You've invited the king into your house and you don't even notice. You don't even appreciate it. The lights are shut. Where's the welcoming uh, mat? Where's the warm welcome? You don't even notice that the king is standing next to you. In a way, that's the greatest insult. Could you imagine? So how, how does Hashem feel? Does he really feel affectionate and wanted? So yes, in some sense it makes no difference. He's here. The king is here. The king is greater than all of us. The deed is done. You know, yes, it's true. Let's not overrate our personal subjective. But the personal subjective is very important. Everything is divine providence. God created us as human beings, as individuals, as personal beings, as subjective beings, as conscious beings. So whatever, in the greater scheme of things, whatever that consciousness may be, if it's just a fragment or just, Significant or not significant, but for us, God created us, and that's who we are. And therefore, it's important. This is an essential part of it, that God wants. He wants our conscious participation. He wants our personal, subjective participation. We should be thrilled and excited that the king is here with us, that we're doing the mitzvah, and we're inviting God into our house and creating a home for him, and he's right here with us in this material, physical world. We should welcome him properly. Light up the room. Warm up the house. Give him a warm welcome. Show appreciation. Otherwise, it's a slap in the face. It's almost an insult. So that's definitely not ideal. So you've done the mitzvah, but it's a corpse. It's dead. The material you have, the body is here. But there's no energy. There's no soul, there's no heat, there's no light. Corpse, unbudgeable, unmovable corpse. There's no spirituality. There's no sensitivity, there's no feeling, there's no awareness, there's no life. That's not what God wants. God wants a a vibrant mitzvah. He wants a beautiful home, an illuminated home. A warm, welcoming home. Appreciation. Awareness, sensitivity. So if a person remains uncouth, a person remains unrefined, arrogant, egotistical, you know, he hasn't developed his spirituality. He hasn't meditated about godliness. He's not studying about God. He's not thinking about godliness. He's doing mitzvot, but he's not thinking about God. Definitely has no emotional attachment to God. He's not experiencing godliness. Has no great desire for godliness. No great thrill or pleasure from godliness. 
not really moved or inspired by godliness. God almost feels unwelcome. You know, thank you, you've invited me to your house, but you, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, an, and, and you're, not, you're not even paying attention. Hashem wants us. He wants to feel at home. He wants to feel welcome, wanted, desired, appreciated. So that's an essential part of the mitzvah. You can't say the deed is what matters and therefore it doesn't matter. My personal status doesn't matter. If I'm a good person, a nice person, a refined person, a sensitive person, a spiritual person, a mindful person, a weird person, it doesn't matter. What difference does it make? I go through life, I'm doing what I have to do, and that's all that matters. No, not so. It's not good enough. The mitzvah has to reflect. The mitzvah is divine. So the mitzvah has to reflect the divinity of Hashem. Hashem is an absolute being. Hashem is 100%. So the mitzvah has to reflect that divinity. If the mitzvah only touches your actions, but it leaves your heart cold and it leaves your mind cold and leaves your personal subjective consciousness and awareness totally out in the cold, then it's not, the mitzvah is not reflecting, it's not a reflection, it's not an illuminated mitzvah. It's not a reflection of the divinity of the mitzvah. The mitzvah is divine, it's absolute. So when does the mitzvah truly reflect the divinity of the mitzvah? When does it truly become a dwelling place for God? If it also touches you absolutely. If it doesn't leave any part of you out of the mitzvah. It's not you're doing the mitzvah with, with one hand tied behind your back. You're not paying attention when you're doing the mitzvah. Your heart is elsewhere. Your mind is in one place. Your heart is in another place. Your will is in a third place. And your pleasure is in a third place. And you're just doing the mitzvah cold-bloodedly, mechanically, externally, superficially. Then it's, a, then it's a, the mitzvah is not an illuminated mitzvah. It's not a reflection of the divine, of the divinity of the mitzvah. It's a divine. Something as divine is absolute. So it has to engage you and touch you absolutely with every fiber of your being and every bone in your body. When you light the, the candles, the Shabbos candles, you're on fire. When you light the Hanukkah candles, you're on fire. Otherwise, it's not, what kind of mitzvah is this? You don't, then there's no reflection that this is a mitzvah. There's no reflection that this is divine, that you've drawn down God's essence into this world. God's essence is absolute. How can this be divine if it's so cold-blooded and it's so cold and, and the lights are shut and there's no awareness and there's no refinement and no sensitivity? There's no joy, there's no passion. This is a mitzvah. So that's an essential part of the mitzvah. It's not a secondary thing. Oh, it's icing on the cake. It's nice. The person is spiritual. It's nice if you do the mitzvah with sensitivity. It's a nice thing. But if not, who cares? No. God wants it. He desires it because this is an essential part of the mitzvah. Just like you can't divide within God, you can't separate, compartmentalize God. God is an absolute unified being. So too, the mitzvah has to unify us. We also have to become absolutely unified in the mitzvah. If it's divine, it has to touch us with the totality of our being. And this was the whole revolution of Hasidus, the Baal Shem Tev taught, taught, uh, taught us that a Jew, a Hasid, whatever he does, he has to do 100%. When you do a mitzvah, you're doing it 100%. When you're praying, you're praying 100%. You're not just moving your lips. Your mind is focused. Your heart is concentrated. Your whole being is focused and concentrated. That's what the Baal Shem Tev said when, uh, when we pray. And this is unique to the Jewish people. When you pray, people are shaking. You shake, chuckles. 
Why, why does the Jew shake? So Hashem does that. Because it's like the moment of intimacy, which engages every fiber of your being and every bone in your body. It's not just, you're not 99.9%. At that moment, you're 100%. Your consciousness, your subconscious, your heart, your mind, your body, your physical, spiritual, every part of you is 100% concentrated. Otherwise, it's impossible. It can't be intimate unless you're 100% concentrated. So too, in a Jew davens, you're, you're davening 100%. Your mind and your heart, your whole being, physically and spiritually, emotionally and psychologically, and high consciousness, higher levels of consciousness, subconscious, your whole being is completely concentrated. You're being intimate with Hashem. When you do someone a favor, you're doing it 100%, not half-hearted. Whatever you do, you do 100%. When you're learning Torah, 100%. Your mind is totally present. You're not... So this is an essential part of our Judaism. This is an essential part of our of the mitzvah, the kavanah, the intent, the personal subjective consciousness, what you're bringing to the table, what you're personally bringing to the table, is an essential part of the mitzvah. Because it's only then that you become, the, the less rigid you become, and the more spiritual you become, the more you become a reflection of the divine. The more you're bringing the divine in, and the divine is illuminated. You can sense the holiness. It's not enough that we bring holiness into the world. God wants us to feel the holiness. The holiness should become transparent. We should sense the holiness. Because that's the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of creation, like I said earlier, is and this purpose will be fulfilled with the coming of Mashiach. When Mashiach will come, the whole world will become holy. We'll sense the holiness. Right now, today, and for the past few thousand years, we're, we've been busy making the world holy. Every time we do a mitzvah, we're making the world holy. Every Jew is given a portion of this world, and by all of us individually and collectively doing the mitzvah and throughout all the generations, we're making a different portion of the world holy. But eventually, ultimately, all of this will reach the point where the whole world will become holy, but today we don't feel the holiness. Mashiach will come, and this is the ultimate purpose of creation. That's what God desired. God desired, He wanted a home, a dwelling place for Himself in this world. He wanted that we should feel the holiness. When Mashiach will come, we'll feel, the whole world will feel holy. Godliness will become transparent. We'll sense Godliness. You walk down the streets and you'll feel the holiness. Every day will be holy. Yom Shekuli Shabbos. Every day will feel like Shabbos. You'll feel, you'll sense the holiness in the day, in time, in space. Every human being will feel connected and feel holy. The whole world will acknowledge God. There won't be a single human being in this world that will not acknowledge God. The whole world will become a holy place. So that's what God wanted. He wanted to, to feel at home here, but he also wanted that it should be an illuminated house. You should feel, you should see, you should sense, you should, you should feel the holiness. So the only way to really fulfill this purpose is if you do the mitzvah in such a way that you're, you, not only are you doing something holy, but you feel the holiness. You're sensitive to the holiness. You sense that holiness. Your mind is aware of the holiness. Your heart is on fire. You experience it. Now, that takes time. That doesn't happen. That's more than just action. That takes a lot of effort to be able to refine yourself, to work on yourself, that your mind should meditate until you become aware of godliness, and your heart should be inspired and moved and touched by godliness. And you should experience godliness. And you should desire Godliness. You should be inspired by Godliness. And that should give you pleasure. That takes time. That takes effort. And that was the whole emphasis of Hasidus. 
The emphasis of Hasidus wasn't just to do the action. Do the action, of course, a Jew always knew. You have to follow the code of Jewish law and live like a Jew and think like a Jew and act like a Jew. The revolution of Hasidus was that a person should become godly. It's not enough you're doing something godly, but you should become godly. And the less rigid and less egotistical you are, the more godly you become. The more you become a reflection to godliness, the more you connect with godliness, the more you sense godliness, you become a reflection of godliness. Then the mitzvah that you do becomes an illuminated mitzvah. Then God really feels at home and feels welcome and wanted and appreciated. Okay, let's learn inside. So we learned last week that although both the body and the soul, both are created by God, and both are a result of the tzimtzum, the light passes through the screen, the screening process, which disconnects the light from its source. In other words, when there's no screen, the light points to its source. When the light comes through the screen, it's almost like a different light. You see the light, you can't see the source. There's a screen blocking, interfering between the light and the source. So you don't sense the source. Now this light itself, you can have different levels of the light. You can have the light coming through a huge window, and you can have the light coming in in a very concentrated form. This light that comes through the screening, in turn, you have a huge window lets in a lot of this light, and then you can have a little tiny peephole that just lets in just a little tiny concentrated ray of light. That's the difference between the body and the soul. The soul, which is much more expansive, much more spiritual, much more expansive, much more, uh, higher level of energy, more overt form of energy. It's the light coming in through a huge window versus the light. Of the, that brings the stone into existence, the inanimate objects, the only sign of life is that it exists. There is no other sign of life. It doesn't even grow. It, doesn't, it, can, stand, it can sit there for thousands of years and doesn't move and doesn't bud. So it's like a tiny ray of light. But both of these lights, the expansive light of the human soul and the light that brings the stone into existence, both come from the screen light. After many, many tzimtzumim, because both of them are disconnected from its source in the sense that you don't sense the divine. Just like when you look at the stone, it doesn't point its finger to God. You don't sense anything godly. When you look at your own life, you sense energy, you sense life. But you don't sense the divine. You don't make a connection to the divine. We don't make the connection that life is miraculous. The truth is, life is miraculous. Where does life come from? Life is divine. All the scientists in the world can create the life of a fly. If we were able to see and to sense the truth, we would be so moved and touched by life. What a miracle. Where does life come from? It comes from within. It's divine. There's no human fingerprints on life. It's not a mechanical event. It's a purely divine event. But we, we notice it and we, like, we don't respond. So what? So I'm alive. What do you mean, so what? You're alive. You know what life is? Life is a divine miracle. It makes no sense. But we don't sense the divinity. We don't sense the miracle. We take it for granted. Life. We enjoy the life and we like the vitality and the energy. That we sense, the energy, but we don't sense the divine connection. We don't sense that it's a, the miraculous aspect of it. Because the light comes from a screen. The light is like screen and therefore you don't, it's a disconnected light. 
you don't see the divinity. In that sense, the body and the soul share the same source. Both of them come from a light that's disconnected, that's screened. But nevertheless, the light itself is different. In the, the stone, the light is like a little ray because there's no sign of life. There's no energy. There's no flexibility. There's no spirituality. It's very rigid. It's like material, very tangible. Versus the soul. The soul is spiritual. The soul is flexible. The soul is dynamic. The soul is full of energy. The soul is such a huge range. So the soul is like lets in a lot of the light. Versus the stone just lets in a tiny ray of light. So that's the difference between the body and the soul. A body, a corpse without a soul. The body without the soul is like a corpse, like a stone. It doesn't move, it doesn't budge, it stands still, there's nothing there, it exists, it's material, it's, that, that, that's all it is. There's no sign of life, there's no sign of spirituality, there's no sign of energy, there's no sign of flexibility. Versus when the soul enters the body, now suddenly there's life, there's energy, there's di- the soul is dynamic, the soul can imagine, the soul can think, the soul can feel. It has such a huge range. It lets in so much light. Versus the light of the body itself. We left off that although there's no difference in the life force of the soul and that of the body, in terms that neither of them reveal, both of them are conceal, conceal ungodliness. You don't sense any, there's no sense of godliness whatsoever. Because they're both part of this physical material world that we live in, the world of Klippa. So we're holding in the middle of 521. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, the godly illumination, meaning the flow of vitality by which God illumines and gives life to all creatures of this world by way of this garment, example, Kripa Noga, is not the same for them all. And the difference between the life force of the various creatures is in terms of contraction and expansion. In some creatures, the life force is constricted and limited, while in others it finds broader expression. The difference between concealment of the life force and its contractions can be expressed as follows. Suppose one hangs a thick curtain on a window to screen out the sunlight. The light entering the room through the curtain will be of an illumination of entirely different quality. In fact, it might be described as a mere echo of the original light. This is concealment. If, on the other hand, one boards up the window and leaves only a tiny hole by which the light may pass, the light shining through the hole, though greatly restricted, will be the same qualitatively as the original light. This is what is meant by contraction. So it is too with regard to our subject. Klipa Nova is the thick curtain which veils the divine creative power equally from all creatures of this world. This curtained light varies, however, from one creature to another in degree of contraction. Dr. Rebbe now goes on to enumerate these differences. In the physical body of a living creature, and in an absolutely inanimate being, such as stones or earth, in which no life or spirituality are apparent, since they lack even the power of growth, the ray of the divine creative power is in a state of unparalleled contraction. The tiniest ray of light. The, 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 it's the most contracted energy in this world. There's nothing. All there is is that it merely exists. That's all. There's no sign of life. There's no sign of energy. There's no sign of life. There's no reflection of anything. 
All there is is that it exists, and you know if it exists, it has to have an energy that's bringing it into existence. That's the only life force that it has. So it's like a tiny ray, the tiniest ray, the most contracted light in the universe. Something tangible, something material, a stone. So minute is the life force within these inanimate beings that they lack even the power of growth. In vegetation, the ray is not so greatly contracted. The phenomenon of growth indicates the presence of something more than mere physical matter. Some degree of spirituality is in evidence. In general, all things in this world are divided into four categories, mineral, vegetable, animal, and man. The speaker, corresponding to the four letters of the divine name, tetragrammation, from which they are derived. Each of these four categories receives its vitality from one of the four letters. So here he's saying that, he's saying something novel, that, that you would think that at the source there is no differentiation. All differentiations is like you use the analogy in the window, how large the window is, how concentrated the light is. With this huge opening, there's a more reflection of energy of light. That's the soul of man. If there's uh, uh, more of a contraction, then you get the soul, the life expression of an animal, animal life. But there's even a greater co uh, concentration and contraction, you get the life of a tree, of organic life. And when there's the, the tiniest, uh, the greatest contraction, then you get just the existence of a stone, of an unmovable, inorganic object. But at the source, it's all the same. Here he's saying no. That everything that exists in this world has a source in the spiritual realm. And he's saying even in the divine. Because God's name is made up of four letters. So therefore, the light and the life force was also shaped. And that defined the four different categories. Why are there four categories in this world? Because in the divine, there are four different letters. Each letter is shaped differently. Each letter has a different meaning. So the yud... And the K and the Vav and the last K, these, these, that's why everything in this world is broken down into four categories. Inorganic, organic, animal life, and human life. So this is a very great principle in Judaism. Everything in this world is like the tip of the iceberg. But everything in this world really has a spiritual source and ultimately a divine source. But he doesn't get into that right now. He just, he just mentions that. Okay, continue. Now, just as the illumination and the flow of vitality found in the mineral and vegetable categories bears no comparison or likeness to the illumination and flow of vitality flowed in animals and man. Although in all four categories, the divine animating light is the same in terms of the concealment of countenance. In all four categories, the inner aspect of the divine light is concealed equally and in all four categories, the light is clothed in the same garment, namely the garment veil of Noga. Hence, in none of these categories is it apparent that their vitality is actually godliness. Yet, despite this equality, the vitality of inanimate beings and plants is incomparable to that of animals and men. So it's interesting. You just finished saying that there are four categories based on the four letters of Hashem's name, Yudke Vavke. And then he bunches, he bunches the four of them into two, two categories, two and two. He says, just like you can't compare the life 
of the inorganic and the organic to the life of the animal and the human. So from four categories, he made, it, he made two categories. Why did he drum from four categories and he bunches, the, bunches them together? So the Rebbe explains because within these four categories, the organic life is much closer to the inorganic than it is to the animal life. And the animal life is much closer to the human than it is to the organic life. Why? Because the inorganic is obviously something material, it's something that's not flexible, it's rigid, it's just tangible, that's all it is. There's no sign of life whatsoever. There's no vitality. It's only that we know if it exists, it has to have a soul, it has to have an energy that's bringing it into existence. Matter is energy. But it's not something that's obvious, not something you can see. The energy brings it into existence. That's it. That's the most contracted, most concentrated light. Versus organic life. Organic life, you see some signs of life. It grows. It's alive. It breathes. It grows. But how does that life express itself? That it makes the physical grow. Again, it's, the emphasis is on the physical. It has the ability to grow, to take this physical and it can grow, it can grow in height, it can grow, continue to grow. But it's making the physical grow. So the, even the spirituality expresses itself only by making the physical grow. So again, it's, it's limited to the physical. It's very physical, it's very material. There's no sense of real life. The whole life is, where do you see it, spirituality, that it makes the physical grow even more physical. <laughs> you, get, you end up with a more a larger tree. A larger growth. And the physical grows in physicality. So the, even the life force is really, the emphasis is really on the, on the physical. It's the spiritual making the physical grow. Versus the animal life, you see real life. The animal is alive. The animal roams. The animal is alive. It's much more spiritual. And then you have the ultimate, the human life. Imagination, thought, thinking, conceiving, wondering, sensing the whole. And within the person itself, you know, the human being is a microcosm. So within a human being itself, we also have all of these four categories within us. The, in, the inorganic, the organic, the anim, plant life, animal life and the human life. The inorganic within us is the letters, our ability to communicate, to speak. Letters. Letters are like stones. They have no life of its own. They're just a vehicle, a vessel that you communicate with. Letters itself don't grow, don't expand. It's just a vehicle. You want to express something, so you express it in words and letters. The letters itself have no, it's, not, it's the content of a letter. The letters itself are nothing, it's just a vehicle. The letters itself don't grow versus the emotion, the content of the letter. If you have a feeling and you're expressing a feeling, feelings grow. Feelings, emotions are like organic life. They grow. A child feels and gets excited about childish things. A child plays around with toys. A child grows older, plays around with bigger toys. 
<laughs> but your emotions grow, and you get excited about, uh, you know, you've outgrown those baby toys. Now, now, you, now you don't want to play with baby cars, now you play with real cars. As your emotions grow, you grow also, so your emotions grow, so it's, it's, it, that's the equivalent of the organic life within us, something that grows, emotions grow. But it's very difficult to really change emotion. Just like organic life, they stay in one place, but they grow. So too, even though you may develop your emotions, but you don't change your emotions. The emotions stay in one place. You can tell even when a baby, when a baby is born from day one, you can already tell if this person, this child by nature is kind, if the child by nature is going to be harsh, if this child by nature is soft, or the child by nature is strong, is a leader, a follower. The truth is you can tell everything from day one. It's a, it's a characteristic trait. People don't change the characteristic traits. You are who you are. You can develop, you can grow, you can, you can become more mature, but your basic characteristic traits will not change. So it's like a tree that doesn't change. The roots, it's deeply rooted, it's, it's, it, its entire existence, it stands in one place, but it can just grow. It can develop and grow, but it's, it's deeply rooted and it remains stationary. So too, a person's characteristic traits, are very rare for a person to change his characteristic traits. It's very rare for a conservative to become a liberal, a liberal to become a conservative. It's very rare, it happens, but it's very rare. Because this is who you are. This is, this is your nature. This is your character. You don't change. You could become more developed, more mature. Your loves and desires, instead of loving childish things, you love more mature things. But your essential character stays the same. So in that sense, emotions are much more spiritual than just the physical, and just action, speech, thought, words, letters. It's, it's your personality, it's your character, it's something that's vibrant, something that grows, but it's limited. Then you have the human mind. The human mind, like a living, a living being, it roams. That's the nature of something that's alive. It moves, constant movement. Your mind roams. A person who has a rich intellectual life is curious. Your mind is constantly seeking, searching, wondering, questioning. You want to understand things that are beyond your nature. You, want to, you can give, even have a desire to understand your enemy, things that you hate. But I want to understand what makes their mind tick. How do they think? You, with your mind, you can go very far. You can, you can go to the end of the universe. Your mind, by nature, is just curious. That's, that's like a living animal, animal life. The sign of something that's alive is constant movement, curiosity. And there you see real change. That you see real flexibility. Less ego. The mind is less egotistical than the emotions. Emotions are much more rigid. Either you love someone or you hate someone. You can't love something that you hate. But with your mind, I can understand my enemy. And I can even appreciate my enemy. With your mind, you can roam. You're very flexible. You can understand something that goes against your nature. There's no limitation. Like an animal that roams. It doesn't stand still in one place. It moves around. With your mind, you can go very far. And your mind is less egotistical. Your mind is much more honest than your emotions. It's very hard to be honest emotionally. But with your mind, the nature of the mind is you want to be honest. You want to know the truth. You want to discover the truth. What's the logic behind it? What's the reasoning behind it? 
You want to be detached from your emotions. You want to see it objectively and honestly the way someone else sees it, who's not emotionally involved. So the mind by nature is much more spiritual, much more flexible, less rigid, less egotistical. It's a higher form of life. And then comes the highest form of life. The highest form of life is the human, which the Torah refers to as medaber. Medaber means speaker. Why does the Torah use medaber to characterize a human being? True. That distinguishes us from animals, that we have the ability to speak. Why doesn't the Torah refer to us as sikhli, as rational being? That's a much, much higher, higher form that distinguishes us. If you look in the Western Dictionary, man is referred to as rational animal. Why doesn't the Torah define man as a rational being? We have imagination. The Torah refers to us as a medaber, because medaber doesn't just mean to speak. Medaber means to communicate. Medaber is the ultimate expression of spirituality, of complete egolessness. Because Medaber is about the ability to step outside of your own shoes and to put yourself into someone else's mind. See yourself from someone else's point of view. That's communication. That's real communication. Relationships is about stepping outside your own shoes and seeing yourself from someone else's point of view. Now, that's almost impossible. How can a human being step outside of himself? It's even beyond the capacity of the mind. The mind doesn't dictate that you step outside of yourself. As a matter of fact, they have a relationship with anyone else. As a matter of fact, people who, are very, who live in their mind actually tend to be isolationists. They tend to remove themselves from people. People are a distraction. In order, to, in order for them to think, they like to be quiet, they like to be alone. Ivory tower thinkers, people are a distraction. The mind has a mind of its own, has a life of its own. I don't need anyone. The person who's a true mind is totally self-sufficient, is totally independent. He doesn't really need anyone. As a matter of fact, people are a distraction to him. He just likes to be in his own and to think and to meditate and to figure things out. And he can entertain himself. He doesn't need anyone. Completely self-sufficient. The mind doesn't dictate that you need relationships. Where is this deep need that we have? This need to get married, this need to have relationships. Where does it come from? This is the ultimate expression of egolessness, of the divine, of spirituality. The ultimate flexibility where a person could completely step outside of your own shoes and see yourself from another human being's perspective, enter into, enter into the other person's mind. That's real communication. Where does this deep need come from? Because that, that's the highest form of life, the ultimate reflection of godliness of Hashem. Since Hashem is truly infinite and undefined, so that divine aspect of us, where, where does that find expression? In the human soul. In the human being, human beings have relationships. We don't bond. It's not like animals. Animals bond. Once a year they bond and they do what they have to do and that's it. Human beings don't bond. Animals bond, not human beings. Human beings get married. Human beings have relationships. It's different. Human beings have a deep need to connect. That's the ultimate reflection of godliness. It's the ultimate reflection of something divine, of something infinite, of something undefined. It's the ultimate expression of egolessness, of something... Completely flexible egos. 
a, an illumination of godliness. You see it in the human soul, as the Torah refers to the human soul, as medaber, in the need to communicate, to connect, to step outside of yourself, the ability to step outside of yourself, the need to step outside of yourself. So the ultimate reflection of the divine, of energy, of light, a reflection of Hashem, the source of life, and the source is in the human soul. So that's why the human soul is the ultimate reflection of God. It's the least symptom, it's the least concentrated light, it's the, the greatest revelation of light possible. The greatest reflection of the source. Vitality and light. So therefore, he says, just like there is no, there's such a huge gap, such a huge difference between the stone, the body, the corpse, per se, which is like a stone, which is rigid, which is no flexibility, which is egotistical, versus the human soul, which is the most spiritual, which is the most flexible, which is the most egoless, which is the greatest expression, the greatest revelation of godliness. So too, that's the difference between the intent of the mitzvah and the physical act of the mitzvah. Just like you can't compare the soul of the person to the body of the person, which is like the difference between the soul, between the stone and human life, so too you can't compare the physical act of the mitzvah to the soul of the mitzvah, the intent with which you invest the mitzvah, the vitality and the energy with which you invest into the mitzvah, the personal subjective feeling and connection that you invest in the mitzvah. You can't compare the two. Similarly. There is no comparison or likeliness between the illumination and the flow of the blessed in soft light, uh, meaning the inner aspect of his will without concealment of countenance and with no um, garment whatsoever. As it radiates and disclosed within the mitzvah consisting of action, whether actual action or mitzvah um, performed through speech and verbal articulation, which is regarded as actual action, as mentioned above, when performed with, without kavan. So just like he said that there is no difference from the stone to the human soul in regarding to the fact that both of them come from the screened veil, that the light comes through a screen and is veiled, and therefore you don't make the godly connection, you sense that you're alive and you sense that vitality. And you appreciate that energy, but you don't appreciate the miraculousness or the divinity or the godliness of that energy, just like you don't appreciate the godliness of the stone. But nevertheless, there's a huge gap between the two. The stone is a concentrated energy versus the human being is a more expansive and an energy which reflects the light, the, in, the, the infinite aspect of the light. It's a more revealed energy. So too, within the mitzvah itself, there is no difference between the deed of the mitzvah and the soul, the heart and soul that you pour into the mitzvah. Both of them are holy. Both of them are divine. There is no difference. This is divine and this is divine. The deed is holy, the act is holy, and the intent is holy. But nevertheless, you can't compare the two. Because in the deed, per se, there's no reflection. It's a very contracted light. It's a very concentrated light. There's no illumination. There's no light. There's no reflection 
of the infinity. There's no sense of the infinity. There's no sense of the divine. There's no sense of holiness. Versus in the intent, in the heart and soul of the mitzvah, there's a reflection of the light. It's expansive. It's flexible. It's egoless. It's a reflection of the infinite. You can't compare the two. Here it's a very, it's like a tiny ray, a concentrated light of godliness. Versus here, it's a huge light. It's like the light of the sun without a screen. But in one instance, the light of the sun comes through the house through a tiny little ray, a little a peephole that lets in the tiniest ray. It's the same light. It's directly connected to the sun. There's no screen. There's no veil. But could you compare it if you have huge French windows and the light is shining in, pouring in? How could you compare? Here, the light is not concentrated. The light is not limited. The light is expansive. You can sense the sun, you can see it, it's warm, it's warm, it illuminates. So the amount of divinity, the amount of the divine, the amount of godliness and holiness that you bring, you pour into this world by doing the kavana, by doing the mitzvah with kavana, is so much greater than the amount of divinity and godliness and holiness that you bring into the world just by doing the mitzvah per se, a cold, mechanical deed without any kavana, without any heart and soul, without any personal involvement and engagement, without any personal sense of connection. You can't compare it. The illumination of Ensoth found in these mitzvahs um, bears no likeliness or comparison with the superior illumination flow of the blessed Ensoth um, light radiating quote in the kavana of the mitzvah of action, meaning man's intention to attach himself to God by fulfilling his will as expressed in the mitzvahs since he and his will are one. Similarly, with regard to kavana and prayer, the recital of Shema and its blessings and another blessings where through one's kavana in them he attaches his thought and intellect to God. So the same is with, with prayer. It's not enough just to verbalize the prayer and mouth the words of prayer and rush through the prayer mechanically and by rote. You can't compare someone who just prays and fulfills his obligation versus someone who's genuinely praying, who's moved by the prayer, who the prayer is an experience. You know, you would see the Rebbe. Tonight is Yutshvat. Tonight is the day that the Rebbe became Rebbe on the day of the yard site of his father-in-law. Technically, it was a year later, but it says when one tzaddik leaves, another tzaddik immediately takes over. So the Rebbe, you would see when he prayed, you saw him walk into synagogue for prayer, and then when you saw him leave the synagogue after prayer, you can physically see the difference. He was like, re- he was like energized. He was like rejuvenated. You could see in his step, sense of purpose, the sense of vitality, you see that the prayer was an experience. It wasn't just praying, going through the motions, mouthing words, filling obligations, paying your income taxes. <laughs> you know, this was, this, was, this was alive. It was vital. It was like refreshed. Imagine praying and feeling refreshed after the prayer, feeling uplifted, inspired, moved, deeper, greater, wider, higher, Everything was just expanded a thousandfold. It was, it was a whole. So you can't compare the level of godliness that you draw down when you fulfill the mitzvah of prayer by praying with heart and soul, with intent. As the Baal Shem Tev taught us, you pray 100% with every fiber of your being and every bone in your body versus if you do the mitzvah, you've done the obligation, yes, but 
Yes, you're on board, you're on the train. You made the plane, you're on the train, but you're in fourth class versus flying first class. <laughs> Hashem wanted us to fly. You get an upgrade. It is not that attachment of man's thought and intellect to God is intrinsically superior to attachment through the actual practical fulfillment of the mitzvah dependent on action. Okay, so here he's making clear, he's making clear a very important point. That we're not talking about spirituality per se. If a person merely developed his spiritual sense of awareness and higher levels of consciousness and meditated for a thousand years, nine hours a day, for a thousand years, that wouldn't even come close. You can't even compare that to one single mitzvah. Why? Because this is personal, subjective, individual, human, and finite. It's not divine. There's an unbridgeable gap between the divine, between the finite and the infinite. There's an unbridgeable chasm between the angel, the create, created, and God. Imagine an angel. Angels sit and meditate 24-7. No distraction. Buddha himself, Mother Teresa, can never come close to the spirituality of an angel. How could you compare pure spirit, pure energy? Sits and meditates. But there's an unbridgeable gap between a, 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 a created entity, even an angel, the highest levels of angels, the supernal beings, spiritual beings, and God. You can meditate for a thousand years. You won't become one iota closer to God. A zillion is not one iota closer to infinity than one. There's no, there's no, it's an unbridgeable gap. So it's not, we're not talking about spirituality per se. Awareness, philosophy, love, meditation, higher levels of consciousness, the sublime, music, art. That's nothing. We're talking about spirituality that's connected to the divine. It's because God wants us to do the mitzvah with intent. That's why the less egotistical you are and the more intent you have and the more spiritual you are, the more you become a reflection of God, of the divine. It's only because you're doing a mitzvah. It's not spirituality per se. It's because you're doing the mitzvah. But you're doing the mitzvah with heart and soul, with feeling. And God wants us to do the mitzvah with heart and soul. So you're doing something divine. It's only the will of God which is divine. It's when you do a mitzvah, that's holy. So when God wants us to do the mitzvah with heart and soul, God wants us to pray with heart and soul. So when you're doing a mitzvah with heart and soul and with feeling and you're praying with heart and feeling, you're doing the divine will. That's why that's holy. So he says you can't compare when you're doing something divine or you're doing something holy if you're just doing it mechanically, by rote, just the deed, very cold-bloodedly, versus if you do it with intent, if you do it with soul, like a human soul, you do it with soul. Then your soul, the less egotistical you are, the more refined you are, the more spiritual you are, the more aware you are, the higher level of consciousness you are, and you're pouring all of that into the mitzvah, then you become a reflection of the divine then you bring a lot of light into this world, a lot of holiness into this world. Much more so than 
through the mitzvah per se if he just did the mitzvah without heart and soul, without kavon. Because you're also fulfilling the divine will. You're doing something divine. But you're doing it with energy, with soul. So you're bringing in a lot of divinity into this world. And the divinity is illuminated. You're bringing a lot of warmth and a lot of light. As will be explained further on the unity with God achieved by performance of mitzvot is described in the same terms as the unity of husband and wife, kedushin, as we say in the blessing preceding the fulfillment of a mitzvah. God who sanctified us with his commandments. Naturally, man cannot attain this degree of unity with God by his own efforts. It is only by God's kindness in charging us with the mitzvot that we become united with him thereby. Obviously, the quality of man's attachment to God through kavana cannot surpass that of the performance of mitzvot, which possesses the God-given ability to unite man with him. Where, then, lies the superiority of kavana over actual performance of mitzvot described earlier as paralleling the superiority of soul over body? The altar Rebbe now goes on to say that, like the actual mitzvot themselves, Man's kavana in performing them expresses God's will. It is the illumination of divine will contained in kavana that is superior. In the Alter Rebbe's words, rather kavana is superior because this too is God's will, that one attach himself to him by intellect and thought, and by the kavana of the active mitzvot, and by one's kavana during the recital of Shema and in prayer and other blessings, and the illumination of the supernal will that radiates and is closed in this covenant is infinitely greater and loftier than the illumination of the supernal will that radiates from the performance of the mitzvot themselves in action and speech without covenant. This superiority of covenant is similar to the superiority of the light of the soul over the body, which is a vessel and garment for the soul, just as the body of the actual mitzvah is a vessel and garment for its covenant. For this reason, then, the performance of a mitzvah is likened to a body, and it's kavanah to a soul. So since they're both the will of Hashem, but nevertheless, here the will of Hashem is infinitely greater, and much more revealed, just like in the soul, the life force is much more revealed than in the body per se. Just like in the human soul, there's a much greater revelation than in the stone. So too, in the kavanah, and the intent of the mitzvah, there's a much greater illumination of Hashem, of Hashem's will, of the divinity, than through the mitzvah per se. Now, it says that a person should do a mitzvah even without the proper intent. Shaloy l'shma, even if a person is doing a mitzvah for ulterior motives. He's not a refined person. He is a very egotistical person. All he can think about is himself. And he's doing the mitzvah for selfish reasons. He is self-centered, self-absorbed, very rigid, very egotistical, very immature. He's doing the mitzvah because, it says in the Torah, God will reward you. Or he's thinking about the world to come, the eternal ego. Can't get away from himself. So it's very childish. It's a very childish way of doing the mitzvah immature way of doing the mitzvah. Nevertheless, the Torah says, do the mitzvah, even if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, because 
by doing the mitzvah, even for the wrong reasons, ultimately, eventually, you will do the mitzvah for the right reasons. The language the Torah uses is le'olam, that you should always, as if you have no choice, this is the only way to do the mitzvah. As Maimonides says, when you educate a child, not only a child in years, a person who is never exposed to Judaism in the sense of like a child. You know, Jewish years are not measured by a passport. You can have someone who's 90, but he's still immature. He's still like a baby. He's still like a five-year-old child who never grew up. We're talking about a child who doesn't, doesn't have the maturity yet to appreciate the mitzvah, to do the mitzvah for its own sake. So a child, the only way you can teach a child is, is you have to give a child a candy. A child, he can't start off studying and appreciate knowledge for knowledge's sake. Which child appreciates knowledge for knowledge's sake? Children have to be bribed to go to school. You get a nice candy, you'll get rewarded, we'll take you on a nice trip. If you don't go, you're going to be punished. I mean, you know, children can't relate to anything else. It's only when the child grows up that the child suddenly develops a taste. He doesn't know one has to curse him, no one has to force him to come. He wants to come, he wants to learn, he wants to think, he wants to learn, he wants... He enjoys it, he gets pleasure out of it, but it takes time to develop. It doesn't happen overnight. You can't start, you can't jump onto the roof. You have to go step by step, slowly but surely. You have to start on the ground floor and work your way up. So the Torah says, this is the only way a person can advance. You have to have a certain ulterior motive to start. That's why... That's the, why the klipa, the ego, is compared to a klipa. Klipa, a shell, serves a purpose. The shell protects the fruit. The fruit can't grow without a shell. Once the fruit grows, then you can discard the shell. In other words, initially a person needs an egotistical motivation. A person can't start with a pure motivation. You have to be motivated. What's your motivation? Why should I, why should I, why should I spend time in spirituality? Something I can't appreciate. Something I can't see. Something that's intangible. Before you develop a taste, you have to have an egotistical or an ulterior motive. That's the normal procedure of things. It's impossible otherwise. So you have to start out with a klipa. You have to start out with a shell. You have to have start out with an ulterior motive. But eventually, that will lead you to do the mitzvah the proper way. But the goal is, the Torah says it's not enough. We don't say, listen, do the mitzvah even if you're doing it for an ulterior motive. Because what difference does it make? The deed is done. Who cares what your motive is? Who cares if you're arrogant, egotistical, if you have ulterior motives, if you're superficial? As long as, you, as long as you've done the deed, you've studied the Torah, you've done the mitzvah. That's not what the Torah says. The Torah says no. The reason we're telling you it's good enough to do the mitzvah for all the wrong reasons, even if you're unrefined, even if you're like a spiritual baby, a spiritual child, immature, egotistical, and you're doing it for all the wrong reasons, it's because eventually you will do it for the right reason. The goal is you should do it lishma. You have to do the mitzvah for the right reasons, no ulterior motives. You're doing it for its own sake because you want to connect with Hashem, because you love Hashem, and it's an end in itself. And you appreciate it. But... But since it's impossible to start on that level, a human being, we're egotistical beings, we're, human, we're down-to-earth beings, we can't start pure motives and pure spirituality. So you have to educate. It's a, it's a step-by-step pro, uh, process. So first you start out with ulterior motive, and that's okay. 
Because eventually you will come to do the right reason. But that has to be the ideal. The ideal has to be that you have to do the mitzvah and you have to become sensitive and you have to become refined and you have to become less egotistical and less rigid and a more spiritual person and a more open person and a more expansive person and a deeper person and a, and a greater person. You have to be alive. You have to be a vibrant Jew. You have to be alive. You have to be a spiritual, you have to be an open person. You can't be a rigid, closed, small-minded prejudicial person but that's the goal but you can't start out that way so we start out step by step as long as you do the deed eventually the deed will lead you because the deed is holy you've done something holy whether you know it or not whether you appreciate it or not the fact is you've done something holy so the holiness of the Torah it says if you study Torah the the holiness of the Torah will eventually get through to you the holiness of the Torah will eventually refine you that eventually you'll do the mitzvah properly, with soul and heartfelt and genuine. And it'll become an, an illuminated. The mitzvah will become illuminated. The mitzvah will start reflecting the divine. You'll start sensing the holiness. But you, you can't be satisfied and content. Say, it's who cares? As long as I'm studying Torah, so, so I'm not refined, so I'm arrogant, so I'm egotistical. That's a very dark place. God doesn't want a dark place. God wants an illuminated home. He wa- yes, He created the world because He wants to live here. And He wants us to make Him feel at home here. But He doesn't feel at home if it's dark and it's cold and it's dark and it's un- uninviting and unwelcoming. It's like the story of the Baal Shem Tev. The Baal Shem Tev once walked into a synagogue. Non-Hasidim, Misnagdim. Who called themselves Misnagdim. They were opponents to Hasidim. The Baal Shem Tev immediately walked out. And he said, you know, the synagogue is full with Torah. They thought, they took it as a compliment. Wow. The synagogue is full of Torah. Hashem walked out. He says he couldn't take it. So he explained. He says, no. It says, when your Jew studies Torah properly, the Torah soars. The Torah is light. You know, when something is heavy, it sinks. When something is light, it soars. It's on ear. It soars. It goes up to heaven. When a Jew studies Torah and it's done with sensitivity and it's done with a sense of humility and a sense of egolessness and a sense of godliness and a sense of sincerity and genuineness and depth and spirituality, then it has a soul. It's alive. It has energy. The soul carries it. It's light. Versus if a person studies Torah and it's dark and the whole motivation is arrogance and ego and self-centeredness, self-absorption, then the Torah sinks. It's heavy. The Torah remains down here. So he says he walked into shul. One person was more arrogant than the next. The whole Torah was just there. The whole motivation to study Torah was to get a share in the world to come. It was all about... No one was even thinking about God. No one was thinking about godliness. There was no spirituality. There was no sensitivity. There was no refinement. It was rigid. It was dark. It was arrogant. Hashem so said the Torah is very heavy. It's full of Torah. There's no room. He couldn't step into the synagogue. He had to leave. There's no room. So this is the idealist. The ideal is we have to aspire to what Hashem desires, what Hashem wants. Hashem wants that the mitzvahs have to be l'shema. The mitzvahs have to be refined. The person has to be refined. You have to be a refined person. You have to work on yourself. 
You have to develop your mind, you have to develop your heart, you have to develop your soul, your spirituality, your sensitivity, higher levels of consciousness. You have to constantly go deeper, higher, broader. You have to constantly push yourself, expand, push the envelope, expand. Because God is dynamic, God is infinite. So if God is infinite and God is dynamic, He has to constantly challenge you. God has to be a challenge. Otherwise, where's the divinity? There's no sense of the divinity. If God is truly here, if by doing a mitzvah, you've truly brought God down into this world, why don't I see any, any movement in your life? There's no godliness in your life. There's no movement. There's no change. There's no growth. There's no... This is God. God is infinite. Where's the reflection of the divinity in your life? Where's the light? There's no sense of holiness. There has to be a sense of holiness. Your whole being has to become holy. So this is the challenge. This is the ultimate challenge. This is what Hashem wants of us. This is how we have to do the mitzvah. So, so when we learn, in other words, this whole thing that we've learned in the last few chapters, that the action is what matters most. And the whole reason the world, God created the world is because He wanted the action. And the whole reason the soul came down into this world is because for the action. It's not, God forbid, to minimize the importance of the soul and spirituality and the heart and the mind. No. It's to teach us, it's to highlight that the mitzvah is divine. Once you realize the mitzvah is divine, you should realize that the mitzvah is divine. You should become excited by doing the mitzvah. How can you do the mitzvah cold-bloodedly? When you've just put on tefillin and you've just brought down God into this world, into this physical leather hide. You've made a dwelling place for God. How can you not be jumping out of your skin because of it? How can you not be excited by the mitzvah? How can you not be thrilled by the mitzvah? How can you not do the mitzvah passionately? I'm praying. I'm doing God's will. I'm fulfilling the mitzvah of praying. I'm moving my lips. So how can I not do it with heart and soul, with feeling? How can I just do it like a, I'm paying income taxes, like it's something, it's an obligation, it's a burden. I have no choice. I had a guilt. Or Where's the reflection of the divinity? So not only isn't it a contradiction on the country, it's because it's divine that's why it inspires me and engages me totally. Not only the deed, but also every part of me is engaged. My mind, my heart, my soul.